right, well, we're continuing on with our series entitled, What Am I Doing Here? <laughs> what am I doing here? I read, this, uh, I read this story about God's mercy to a clansman in which Thomas Terrence shares his testimony of being a former hate-filled clansman who was saved by God's grace. I came of age, he says, in the early 1960s in Mobile, Alabama, which had been segregated since its founding. In 1963, reacting to the federally mandated desegregation of Alabama's public schools, Governor George Wallace uttered his infamous pledge of segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. I read some white supremacists, he said, anti-Semitic, anti-communist literature that was circulating within my high school. Then I met the people who were advocating these ideas. The civil rights movement, they said, was part of a communist plot, and the United States government had been infiltrated by communist agents. All these warnings made me anxious about America's survival, and my fears soon turned into hatred towards those I perceived as America's enemies. So it was only a short step to getting involved with Mississippi's dreaded white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the most violent right-wing terrorist organization in the United States at the time. One summer night, as my accomplice and I attempted to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman, we were ambushed in a police stakeout. My partner was killed at the scene. Four blasts of shotgun fire at close range left me critically wounded. Doctors told me it would be a miracle if I lived another 45 minutes, yet God spared my life. To the astonishment of the doctors and the dismay of the police, if anyone deserved to die, it was certainly me. At the end of a two-day trial, I was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. About six months after arriving in prison, I escaped with two other inmates. But a couple of days later, we were apprehended after a blazing gun battle with the authorities, during which one of the other inmates was killed. Had this man not relieved me from standing watch about a half an hour earlier, that day I would have been the one killed. God had shown me mercy once more. Back in prison, I was confined to a six-by-nine-foot cell in the maximum security unit. To keep from going crazy, I read continuously. This eventually led to the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. But as I read the Gospels in my prison cell, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words on the page. My sins came to mind, one after another. Conviction grew, and with it, tears of repentance. I needed God's forgiveness, and I knew it came only through trusting Jesus, who had given his life to pay for my sins. One night, I knelt on the concrete floor of my cell and prayed a simple prayer, confessing my sins and asking Jesus to forgive me, to take over my life and to do whatever he wanted to do with it. 
As I read the Bible daily, a whole new world opened up to me, and I couldn't get enough. Early on, God delivered me from hate, and I began to grow in love for others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were very different from me. After serving eight years in prison, an extraordinary turn of events resulted in a parole grant to attend university. That set in motion a series of developments which, over the next 40 years, led me first into campus ministry, then pastoral ministry in a racially mixed church, and finally to a long ministry of teaching and writing at the C.S. Lewis Institute. As I look back over the nearly 50 years since God saved me, I can only thank and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved. But because he is full of grace and mercy, he gave me exactly what I needed. He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Notice this man said, I can only thank and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved. Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue with this series. Last week we went through Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1, 2, and 3 where Paul says, And you, that's Christians, he, that's Jesus, made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's non-Christians, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Continuing on today to verses 4 through 10, notice, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Today we're going to look at this passage by breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. We're going to pull out some principles, and as always, we'll identify some application for our lives. Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The word but is typically used to introduce a clause contrasting with what has already been mentioned. In this case, we read in verses 1 through 3 that the condition of man is essentially dead, spiritually dead, and filled with selfish desires. And then in contrast to man... Someone who is strikingly different from sinfulness is God. Essentially, this but God statement is making it clear that God is different than man. And that he is not sinful. 
According to these two words, people are consumed with selfish desire and rebellion. But God, who is rich in mercy, Paul says, and notice Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. According to both of these passages, God is rich in mercy, meaning he has a great deal of it, very plentiful, an abundance of it. And so what is it exactly? How do you define mercy? One source stated mercy, pity, and compassion are roughly synonymous. While most modern versions are very good at capturing the meaning of the original languages, the best way to get at the meaning of a word as it is used in Scripture is to read every instance of the word in Scripture. And while we're not going to read all of them right now, here are a few examples of the word mercy being used in the Bible. Psalm 51.1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Psalm 59, 5. You therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Matthew 20, 30. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. According to the Lexham Survey of Theology, The mercy of God describes his focused disposition of compassionate forgiveness toward his people, especially in light of their distressful and dire circumstances. The mercy of God is one of God's communicable attributes, an attribute that that humans can actually emulate in their relationships with others. Throughout the Bible, God's mercy is pictured not only as God's disposition, but as his action on behalf of an undeserving people. And that is what sums it up. God's action on behalf of an undeserving people. God does not have to be forgiving. God does not have to save anyone. If God decided to end it all, He would be justified because people do not deserve to be saved based on their transgressions, their trespasses, their sinfulness, their rebellion against God. So why does he have this mercy? Why does he not just give us what we deserve? Notice Psalm 103.10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Why? Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. 
I read an article called God's love, like marital love, is unconditional, which said this. Picture this, a bride and groom dashing out of the church through the showers of birdseed and into the limo, all aglow with the light of love from the vows they've just taken. In the backseat of the car, en route to the reception, they embrace and kiss. Then the groom announces that he has something to say. Now you realize, my dear, that as far as I'm concerned, we can't really say we're married because I don't know yet what kind of wife you'll turn out to be. I hope for the best, of course, and I'll help you all I can. But only at the end of our lives will I be able to tell if you've lived up to my expectations. If you have, then, <laughs> then and only then, <laughs> I'll agree that we truly got married today. But if you don't, then as far as I'm concerned, we were never married at all. After all, how can I call you my wife if you failed to be a wife to me? Under such circumstances, it will not be a happy honeymoon, <laughs> if there's one at all. A wife cannot be a wife if her whole existence as the wife is conditional and under constant scrutiny. Likewise, for a husband, she will certainly fail. The groom has completely misunderstood the power of marriage to transform the beloved. The couple that tied the knot only 60 minutes ago is every bit as married as the couple celebrating their 60th anniversary. Whatever happens in the course of marriage does not affect the marriedness of that couple. In the same way, how can we be expected to love and trust a God always watching us like a hawk to see if we fail? Right standing with God isn't something that we have to generate from within ourselves. Right standing with God is a free gift. And that's what helps us to grow, to trust, to love, and to obey God. This is a very important thing to understand. God's great love is not something that is based on how well we perform as Christians. It is simply giving to us because of his rich mercy, despite our rebelliousness. Notice verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One source said this about the term, even when. It is used to make an explicit and included situation that might be thought of as an exception. An example might be, you should not argue with your wife even when you think you can win. If you argue with your wife and win the argument, you will still lose in the end because now you have potentially poked a bear and that's not likely going to work out well. God's great love was given to you and to me even when we were dead in trespasses. 
God sent his son into the world to save us, even when we were still sinners. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did not earn that favor. We did not deserve God's intervention because we rebelled against him. As sinners, we were dead in trespasses. Remember, being spiritually dead means to be separated from God. It means to be on the side of evil and not good. But despite that fact, or even when we were on the side of evil, God made us alive together with Christ. Notice, by grace you have been saved. Grace, according to Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary, is favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it, and despite what that person deserves. In the opening story, we learned about a KKK member who had done some pretty bad things. And through the course of events, he came to Christ and became a believer and remembers and remember what he said. I can only thank and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved. This horrible person received favor from God despite what he deserved, which if we're all honest with ourselves, we can agree he didn't deserve God's forgiveness and neither do any of us. Not because we're racists, because I don't think anyone here is, but because like him, at one time in our lives, we were in rebellion against God. We were spiritually dead. By grace, the KKK man was saved, and by grace, we were saved. Not only were we saved, we were made alive together with Christ, who raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Along with giving us life or making us alive with Christ, this verse says that God raised us up with Christ. Notice Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead. Jesus was crucified, tortured, beaten, and killed on the cross. He was buried in a tomb where his broken body laid for three days. But he didn't stay in the tomb. He didn't stay dead. He left that tomb. His disciples witnessed that fact. Jesus appeared to them, and 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts 1, 6 through 11. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will soon come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He not only ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Listen, we too have been raised up together with Jesus and made to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One source said the events that the events have their counterpart in the experience of believers. Not only do they anticipate resurrection and glorification at the end of the age, they are matched by a present realization of the risen life in Christ and our participation with him in his ascended majesty. Notice Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Appear with him in glory. Glory is an interesting word. It essentially means beauty, power, or honor. One source said it's a quality of God's character that emphasizes his greatness and authority. Glory is used in three senses in the Bible. First, as God's moral beauty and perfection of character, which is something we just can't fully understand. But second, it uses God's moral beauty and perfection as a visible presence something that has been seen as fire or dazzling light. And then third, as God's praise, something that God's people give to him. Notice Psalm 115.1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. I read that. The tombstones are getting updated, at least in Hollywood, at the Hollywood Forever, a 64-acre cemetery next to Paramount Studios. They produce multimedia narratives that can be viewed on the cemetery's website. The narratives feature still photographs of the deceased, interviews with friends and film clips. A visitor can see the many biographies of Rudolph Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, and 1,500 others buried there. The owners want to begin producing these multimedia narratives, not just for Hollywood stars, but for anyone buried there. A visit to any cemetery shows how desperate we are to be remembered after death. But the memorials we can leave in this life are nothing compared to the glory that awaits Christians in the next. We as Christians cannot even imagine what awaits us in the age to come when we too will be glorified. As if, as if being saved from hell was not enough. As if God showing mercy on us was not enough. Notice Ephesians 2.7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus, Christians, will experience the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. 
Remember, rich is having a great deal of something. Some people have a great deal of money. They're called rich people. But what do you call somebody who is exceedingly rich? Someone who is rich to a great extent. Someone maybe like Elon Musk, who is considered rich even to those who are rich. They have so much money, it's hard to imagine, but let's try. Elon Musk's net worth is estimated at 229 billion US dollars. And he's 52 years old. So let's assume he has 30 years left to live and wants to spend all of his money before he dies. He has to spend around $7 billion a year to accomplish that task. Which means for the next 30 years, Elon Musk would have to spend a little more than $20 million a day for 30 years to break the bank. In human terms, that is exceedingly rich. Now, disclaimer, my math could be off by several million dollars, but I mean, at that point, who cares? <laughs> now, try to imagine for a second receiving from God, the creator of everything, the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness. Remember, we don't deserve anything other than hellfire for our transgressions, for our rebelliousness. And yet, in the age to come... God will show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur said, salvation, of course, is very much for the believer's blessing. But it is even more for the purpose of eternally glorifying God for bestowing on believers his endless and limitless grace and kindness. The whole of heaven glorifies him for what he had done in saving sinners. Notice Revelation 7, 10 through 12. And crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The reason I drive home the fact that we are not deserving of this grace, that we are not entitled to the exceeding riches of God's grace is because according to Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, regardless of how awesome we think we are, regardless of how much money we have, regardless of how much we go to church, or how much of the Bible we study, or how much better we think we are than someone else. We are not. We are not better than some billionaire or some backwoods clansman until and unless we are in Christ Jesus, until we have fully given ourselves over to God's plan of salvation. And we have received his saving grace, received his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, our leader and forgiver. And when that happens, we need to understand that it was God who all along loved us. Notice Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace, you have been saved through faith. We as Christians owe our salvation to the favor of God, to the undeserved favor of God. Remember, grace is something that God gives us that we do not deserve. And this, more than anything, includes our salvation. We have to understand that this gift God gave us really has nothing to do with our own effort. There are some people who think they can work hard enough and be good enough to earn their way into heaven. Just ask any non-Christian sometime if they think they're going to heaven. And many, many of them will respond, I don't know if heaven is real, but if it were, I would go because I'm a good person. I didn't murder anybody. Or ask someone who thinks that they're a Christian but are not. Why, when they die, they get to go to heaven, and they will usually say the exact same thing. Well, I was pretty good during my life. But notice Romans 10, 9 and... Yeah, Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Only those who have believed in their heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead will be saved. The Bible does not say those who are nice get to be saved. And that is because there is no real goodness aside from God himself. Only he could offer something good. Only he could save us. And that was done by grace through faith. Faith is a belief in God, a confident attitude toward God. That's why the verse in Romans says, only those who believe in their heart that Jesus was raised from the dead will be saved. Think about that. It's easy to say, sure, that sounds good, and I'll go to church, and I'll tell people that I believe, and I'll even act like the best Christian around. But if you don't truly have faith, if you don't truly believe that God was raised Jesus from the dead, then how can you say you're a Christian? How can you believe a God that could not even raise someone from the dead? How could you believe he could even help you? By grace, you have been saved through faith. And then notice, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This salvation we have in Jesus is called a gift. Why would it be called a gift if it were something we could earn or something that we could work towards or something that we could achieve if we just set our minds to it? The simple answer is it wouldn't be. Salvation is called a gift because it had nothing to do with us. Notice again, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We cannot achieve perfection despite what the modern world or the, the modern day culture tells us. According to Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. 
There is none who does good. No, not one. That is why God, in his mighty wisdom, just gave it to us. Here, a gift. I love you so much that I am going to suffer for you on the cross. I'm going to take your punishment and pay the penalty for you. Notice Paul continues to make the point. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Can you imagine meeting someone who was good enough to save themselves? Good enough to pay the price themselves? Well, we get to meet people like that all the time. You see them in the movies? They think they're so good because they do nice things. They help the poor. They help the sick. But do they? Imagine how many homeless people Elon Musk could feed with $20 million a day for 30 years. The reason this point has to be driven home, the reason people have to understand that they are not good enough is not to make them feel bad, but to make us all understand just how much God loves us, just how much God has done for us, and so that we don't boast and take the glory that belongs to God and clothe ourselves with it. All glory belongs to God, here and now, and he will glorify us soon. It's not about our works when it comes to salvation. I know the, the question some people probably have right now is, if that's true, then why do you keep asking us to volunteer for things? <laughs> and that's a great question, and thank you for asking. Notice Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's creation, and we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus for good works. When a person has believed in Jesus for salvation, when a person has placed their trust in God, they demonstrate that faith through good works. For example, if your house catches on fire and the firemen crew show up and they put that fire out for you, how could you not show your gratitude? You'd probably make cool signs thanking them. You might even make them some food or some pastries. You might write them cool cards or go visit them. You would labor to demonstrate your gratitude. You would certainly tell all of your friends about how these brave men and women saved your house as we should with God. Our good works are what help people to understand our gratitude to God for all that he has done. And notice as it relates to those good works, God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. God has given us as Christians the good works needed to achieve what he wants to be achieved. And according to this passage, he did that beforehand, meaning he is in total control. He knows what you need and what the people around you need. And he knows what we all need, which is Jesus. Principle one, God is rich in mercy and he loves us. The Bible says God is rich in mercy and loves us. Remember, mercy is having compassion on those 
who have broken the law. Daniel 9.9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him. How do we apply something like this to our lives? Knowing what God has done for us. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We as Christians have to show mercy to others because we have received mercy from God. In Matthew 18, Jesus shared a story about a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he came across the servant who owed him a great deal of money but couldn't pay. And so he ultimately forgave them or forgave him of all of his debt. He showed him mercy. But that same man went to one of his servants who owed him much less money and couldn't pay. And instead of mercy, he beat him, took him by the throat, threatening him and threw him in prison. Once the king found out he was, he was angry that he didn't show pity as he was shown and then forced him to pay all he owed. After Jesus shared this story, he said this in Matthew 18, 35, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother in trespasses. We have to be merciful. We have to be merciful. Principle two, God will glorify us. God will glorify us, regardless of our past transgressions, regardless of the things that we have done in the past, we can be sure of our inheritance in heaven. We can be sure that God will glorify us. And so how do we apply that to our lives? Hebrews 6, 18. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. God has made promises to those who believe and have faith, and he will not go back on his word. He does not lie. And so we should live our lives knowing that we serve a God who is going to keep his word and will glorify us in the age to come. We have to be confident Christians. Principle three, God is rich in grace and kindness. God is rich in grace and kindness. Isaiah 54, eight, with a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. We need to remember that God chose to give us the gift of salvation. He didn't have to. He is a good and kind God. He is rich in grace. And we, in turn, can show grace to others by imitating him. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Imitate God and walk in love. Imitate God and walk in love.
Principle four, we were created for good works. We as Christians were not created to, as Pastor Larry would say, sit on our blessed assurance. (laughs) We are meant to work for God. Notice Colossians 3.23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Here are five simple things that you can do right now. Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due. When it is in the power of your hand to do so, do not withhold good. Matthew 5.14-16. through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We have to carry each other's burdens. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We have to love each other. I read this article called Christ in You Makes You Like a Superhero, which said, Consider two superheroes, Batman and Spider Man. Batman is a rich and strong man with lots of cool gadgets, his superpowers stem from his external possessions. Spider-Man has a few accessories as well, but he is the superhero because of the spider powers he obtained when he was bitten by a radioactive spider. His nature has been changed. Now he has a new power accessible to him, within him. Christ in you makes you more like Spider-Man than Batman, something alien to you from outside of you has entered into you and changed your nature. You now have power that you did not have before. The trouble with this analogy is that Spider-Man became something more than human. While we are instead, we are being restored to our full humanity. We are becoming more like Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for not giving up on us. We're so grateful, Lord. We know that you didn't have to save us, but you chose to. And it's hard for us sometimes with our finite minds to think about just how much you love us, Lord. But it's my hope and prayer today that you would open our hearts to the reality of just what that means. Just how much you loved us. Just how much you have done for us to just think about receiving your grace, your exceeding kindness is is unfathomable. But I pray that as we think about that today, as we reflect on these words that the Apostle Paul wrote, 
that we would think about how we could apply that to our lives, how we could be more like Christ in our lives, how we would take seriously the gospel and just share it with as many people as possible. Help us, help us to live the life that you want us to live and not the one that we want to live. We thank you for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.